0: Hi, men. In the last episode, we talked about where self-hate comes from, the kinds of patterns that happen um, in childhood where we learn that there's something wrong with us, even though that's not really true. In this episode, we're going to talk about the things that we do now that continue to perpetuate self-hate. Okie doke. Let's dive in. Constructive criticism, not required. Let's say that you sense you have been less than kind toward someone. The voice of constructive criticism says quietly, That was pretty harsh. You're too sarcastic. You always have been. You better clean up your act before you alienate everyone. This voice justifies itself by saying things like, I'm just trying to point these things out to you so that you'll be a better, kinder, happier person. Constructive criticism is a scam run by people who want to beat you up, and they want you to believe that they're doing it for your own good. Be suspicious of any voice, inside or outside, that says that there is something wrong with you. This voice does not like you and is not helpful. It is possible that with the awareness that you have been unkind towards someone, you might realize in a gentle sort of way, I don't want to do that. It doesn't feel very good. And it's not that you're a bad person or even that you shouldn't be that way. It's just that you don't want to be unkind because it hurts your heart. When you are open to that awareness, you won't need to try to be different for in that gentle approach, you will have already changed. Common wisdom that supports self-hate. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. The lyrics to the song, Santa Claus is coming to town. You know the one. You better watch out, that one. You get what you deserve. The harder you try, the better you'll do. Two heads are better than one. Some things are just meant to be. If you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. Side note from Margaret I've never actually heard that saying before, but oh my goodness, what a terrible saying. It's like, Oh, if you're not in the lead, you're going to be looking at someone else's butt all the time. That's so dumb. Anyway, I just had to comment on that. Back to the book. Children should be seen and not heard. Do as I say, not as I do. Conflicting beliefs that maintain self-hate. On the one hand, patience is a virtue. And yet, strike while the iron is hot. I am my brother's keeper. But look out for number one. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. However, generosity is a virtue. Carpe diem! Seize the day! But save for a rainy day. Be realistic, but be imaginative. Express yourself versus control yourself. Self-evaluation. Another unhelpful idea. self-hate is putting incredible pressure on myself to be perfect which causes me to make mistakes because i'm so stressed and overwhelmed and miserable note it isn't actually possible to make mistakes side note from margaret again i think that that's a really important concept in this book Things happen. Like, for example, when we were in Chicago at uh, the Berghoff restaurant, and you had a tick that caused you to knock over a glass. And you were really beating yourself up about it. Because I think in your mind it was, oh, this is a mistake. This is a mistake. This is a mistake. I did something wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. You had a tick. You were born with Tourette's syndrome. It's just a manifestation of this syndrome that you have. It's not something wrong, and you know, to the extent that, yeah, my mom's pants got a little wet, so what? Who cares? She didn't care. She knows that you didn't mean it. She knows that it's just part of your Tourette's. I think that's a really important concept for you in reading this book for for all of us, but I think for you in particular, this idea. That it isn't actually possible to make mistakes. Investing in misery. I tend to focus on punishment and not notice reward. I seem to believe that punishment works and reward doesn't. I wonder what I get from having this belief. If you believe that punishment works then it makes sense to do a bunch of stuff you consider wrong so you can be punished a lot and life will work according to your beliefs. It seems I have an investment in misery. Keep in mind that egocentricity, self-hate, and misery are synonymous. To be miserable is to be the center of the universe. Now let's add the ingredient of knowing I've done something wrong, but turning it around so that I am the victim and should be compensated. Yes, I embezzled money from the company, but the owners are filthy rich, and I deserve more than I get for working so long and hard for them. They owe me. I know I didn't get the project done on time, but my life is really hard and they shouldn't have fired me. I think I'll sue them for wrongful termination. Isn't that perfect? Even our misdeeds are used to ego's advantage. And then, of course, ego is usually right there with suggestions to make up for injustices, large or small, that we feel we've suffered. Things like rationalizing dishonesty, spurious legal actions, not returning a wallet you find, having an affair with someone's partner, driving discourteously, gossiping, ice cream. After all, Life owes me something for this injustice. The Self-Hate Accounting System. In the self-hate accounting system, I add up everything I do. I subtract everything everyone else doesn't do. I add up all the luck everybody has. I subtract all the luck that I don't have. I add up everything everyone else gets. There's a motorcycle. Hi, motorcycle. I add up everything everyone else gets. I subtract everything that I don't get. I add up all the advantages everybody else had. I subtract all the advantages I didn't have. You get the picture. I am so far in the hole because all I do is good things and all I get is bad things. So how can I not feel myself to be a victim? And why should I not try to even the score? And of course we fail to see that almost everyone sees themselves as victims and others as victimizers and we continue to victimize one another. Who of us will stop? self-hate, and the battering cycle. In adult relationships, the stresses of life can lead one partner to become physically or verbally abusive toward the other. This can result in a cyclical pattern of behavior that includes the following elements, increasing stress, abuse, contrition, and a decision to be perfect. We often think of the battering cycle happening between a man and a woman, but it can happen with any two or more people. In the form of self-hate, it requires only oneself. self. In the classic situation, a man and a woman get together because they want to make their lives better. He will take care of her and she will be supportive to enable him to take care of her. After a while, it stops working. The stresses of life push him to a crisis point and he relieves his frustration by beating her. Then he feels good because his stress is relieved, but he feels bad because he beat his wife. She feels good because she's been punished for letting him down, but she feels bad because her husband just beat her. Then they get together and decide that this awful thing must never happen again, and they both feel better. They have a plan. It's under control. We won't make that mistake again. We'll do better will be perfect, and the stress begins to build again. Addictive behaviors, whether it's food, alcohol, drugs, sex, smoking, work, relationships, follow the same cycle. For example, the stresses of life begin to build and I reach for my addiction of choice. If it's food, I head for the kitchen and eat my way from one end to the other. I feel good because the stress is relieved. I've kind of anesthetized myself, and the craving is calmed. But I feel awful because I have just eaten a ton. Margaret, again, this is one of the major ways that I perpetuate my self-hate. Just want to point that out, not because you need to know that, but just to point out that like, these are behaviors that I exhibit You know just as much as you do. So I submit to self-hate's beatings until I'm convinced that I've got a grip on it. I see what happened. It will never happen again. I have a program. I've got it right this time. I'm going to do better. In fact, I'll be perfect. And the stress begins to build. This is the battering cycle. There's stress. Stress overload leads to coping behaviors. Getting beaten, eating, abusing substances, etc. These behaviors lead to feeling better, the reward. You feel better, but then you feel worse. These same behaviors lead to feeling worse. I did it again. You make the decision to be perfect. I will never beat, be beaten, abuse, etc. ever again. And the pressure to be perfect leads to stress. And the whole cycle starts over again. This process can happen between two people or within ourselves between two parts or sub personalities. Adopting the belief that you must be perfect is the perfect setup for self-hate. You believe that your choices are to be perfect or to be a failure. But self-hate sets the standard of perfection, and you can bet you are never going to meet that standard. If you did, if you met that standard, what would self-hate beat you with? What would it frighten you with? And if you weren't frightened, how would you be controlled? Self-hate would have you believe that either it is in control, making you be who and how you should be, or not only will you be imperfect, you will be garbage. It has convinced you that if you were to be just how you are, you would be awful. So the big ugly lie becomes a big ugly belief. Self-hate, judgment, blame, punishment, and rejection are all for your benefit because they're the only things keeping you from being a terrible person. Have we made our point? Would you please risk it and find out once and for all how you are without the beatings and abuse? Spiritual practice doesn't begin until the beatings stop. I'm suggesting that you stop the beatings Many spiritual teachers suggest that hatred is not the answer. They say things about love, forgiveness, generosity, and gratitude. They hardly talk about beating people and hating people and this sort of thing. They say, now folks, this is the direction. This is the way to go. If you really want to wake up and end your suffering and find joy and peace and bliss, this is the way to do it. And the response is, nah. I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. So here's the deal. If you were to, say, for instance, find the willingness to stop the beatings for just one day, and if you turned into a more hideous person than you are now, the next day you could submit to twice the beatings and catch up. I'm just suggesting that you might consider taking the risk. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to stop the beatings. I suspect it's not because we really think we'll be bad if we do. I suspect it's because we don't want to come up against what conditioning and self-hate are going to try to do to us if we take control of our lives. If you decide that you are no longer going to be intimidated by the beatings, you will be immediately engaged in a life and death struggle because the moment that stick is taken away, think about it. If you aren't threatened with punishment, What will drive you to succeed? To make those phone calls, to make that list, to get through that list? And what will happen if you don't do the things you're supposed to do? My life will go down the tubes. I'll be accused of being irresponsible. I'll lose that image I have of myself. People will see through me. I'll feel guilty. It'll get so bad that you'll just die. I think that's what it would eventually come to. If I don't do my work and don't make money, then I won't be able to pay for my house and I won't have any food. And if I follow that along far enough, I realize that I believe all those things on the list are designed to keep me alive. And if I don't do them, the ultimate consequence is death. That's what happens, isn't it? Do this task or die. (laughs) Even if it's get a haircut today. What if you found out that voice had no power over you at all? What if you didn't believe that you were going to die if you didn't do what it told you to do? I think I would just do the next thing on the list. The belief is that I need the beatings. I need the fear of death to do all of these things. I believe it's that drive that keeps me working and doing things. So, what would happen if you stopped believing the voices of self-hate? what would happen to you if you stopped the beatings i find that the worst beatings don't come about my list of things to do they're about behavior psychological kinds of things and emotional ways that i've learned i'm supposed to be as if they are the laws of the universe i must be polite in these circumstances i must be nice or clever or whatever it is so you come home after an evening out during which you've said something unfortunate. What would happen if you didn't respond to that with self-hate? I've tried it. I've had some success, and it does seem to require terrific energetic awareness every second. It takes a huge amount of being present. And it takes courage, because it feels so much like it is the good person thing to do to scold myself for what I've done. Yet, what you're describing is not scolding. It's worse than that. It's abuse. That's what you're really describing. And so the good person thing to do is to submit to the abuse? Pretty weird, huh? There seems to be an element of not having control and or giving up control. If I don't get a beating, there's a feeling of spaciousness and at the same time a terror of that spaciousness. Part of me wants more than anything not to be in control, to just go with the moment, to flow with the process. Another part clings desperately to control, wants to know what's going to happen, wants to like what happens and to influence what happens. But what comes out most for me is this one that's just terrified. But not terrified of abuse, terrified of the lack of it, of the spaciousness. No beatings creates an uncomfortable sense of total freedom. Freedom and spaciousness. That's what's there. It's also a loss of identity because identity is maintained through this insanity we're describing. That's what keeps me at the center of the universe. That's what keeps the whole thing going. If I learn to pay attention, to be present in the moment, I can see all of this happening. Okay, there's a couple things that I wanted to add as commentary to this one. First of all, when Sherry talks about the battering cycle and kind of uses the abuser and the abused person um, to describe the patterns, the thought patterns that we can have in our own heads about ourselves. I think it's really important to say that in real life, the person who's doing the beating is in the wrong. The, the person who is, doing, who is receiving it uh, hasn't actually done anything to deserve it. But what she's really talking about is the thought patterns that both of those people can have when someone's in an abusive relationship that for whatever reason they feel they can't leave. And it's not that she's equating those two positions, or maybe she is, I don't know, but I don't think they're equal. But I do think that they are. it it can be a thought pattern between the two people or between the two halves of one person that... Uh, that perpetuates itself, that it is a dynamic between two people or two sides of one person. Anyway, I just wanted to say that because I think it's important to note, hey, if you beat somebody up, you're in the wrong. (laughs) Uh, And it's not just your thinking that's wrong. Your actions are wrong. In any case, so that was one thing that I wanted to say. Another thing that I wanted to comment on is how much of the behavior that she talks about in this section of the book that I have recognized in myself, especially in these past couple of years, as I've been dealing with the aftermath of my assault and all the other crazy things that have happened to me that seem meaningless. There, She talks in this section about... When bad things happen to you, the urge to feel victimized, like, you know, she gives the example of the, you know, like an employee who's treated really poorly and so wants some, something to happen to, you know, to recognize that there's an injustice. And... There's a lot of good in the world to come from injustices being recognized. But within oneself, it's not always the best thing to focus on. And I am finding that to be very true for myself. For example, this nonsense with this exam that I have to take. The fact that I am stuck here without, you know, I'm not working this year and I, I'm i not a doctor yet. I didn't graduate because of this. It's really unfair. And there is value in trying to make changes in the world so that this kind of situation doesn't happen for others going forward but if i focus on the unfairness in my heart for myself which i have done a lot of these past few months all i'm doing is making myself miserable and i see in this section a way to think about my own internal environment and protecting that environment from the poison of feeling victimized so strongly. So, all of that is just to say that I really recognize the thing that she's talking about in this section. And I have been trying to make that change in thinking for myself and have found it to be very helpful. And I guess the reason that I feel like I want to share that is to give you some proof that this can be a helpful way of thinking. It's not an easy way of thinking. It's not an automatic way of thinking. It's definitely still my first instinct to you know, something bad happens to me. Hey, something bad happened to me. Ah, look at me, something bad happened. Which I think is the way that we naturally respond to these things. In any case, I just wanted to share that with you as an example of the way that this kind of change in thinking can be helpful and can help you move forward and not, can help one move forward and not fixate on the bad things that happen. Okay, men, that's the next chunk of there is nothing wrong with you. And there is nothing wrong with you. I love you so very much, and I want you to be able to love yourself.